Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and I will be your host today. One of my absolute favorite things about podcasting after doing it for over five years now is hearing stories of tech lore. I am a a bit of a sucker for history books about business, uh, books like Barbarians at the Gate being one of my all-time favorites, but even the recent ones, Bad Blood coming out and telling the stories of how technology, how business evolves, and really the impact that it has on society is incredibly fun for me from a sort of geeking out perspective. And people I work with know that I, I often drop archaic references to uh, business and tech stories from many decades ago. But I think there's a lot that we can learn as we create our own strategies today from things people did in the past. And I, we've seen that on this podcast. You know, we've heard scoops from Trisha Gelman about how Salesforce planned marketing attacks against Oracle, or Lars Nilsson talking about. Uh, what Xerox did to build a sales organization in the dawn of the tech age and how they responded during the Rodney King riots. And I think all these things help us make better decisions today. And our guest today has some of these fantastic stories to tell. Bernie Schroeder is currently the director of the Lab and Entrepreneurship Center at San Diego State University, where he has built a leading entrepreneurship program and has helped hundreds of startups get off the ground and get their first clients and get going. From a a personal perspective, I was especially interested for the reasons I've mentioned to talk to Bernie, but also because it was an entrepreneurship professor who had a massive impact on my life. Uh, At UNC Chapel Hill, Ted Zoller, has done a remarkable job pushing the entrepreneurship program at Chapel Hill. And it was one particular class that he taught uh, that I participated in avidly, started a company in that probably more than any other thing has led to a clear domino effect to where I am. Ted was the second guest I've ever had on a podcast. Uh, The company I started in Ted's class is still around. And the relationships I made through Ted have been very, very impactful. So speaking to a professor like Bernie today makes me really appreciative of the professors that had had an impact on my life and also brings to life the relevancy that a professor has to a student because entrepreneurship and getting into startups is one of those things that while it's cool in in magazines and papers and news articles and books and blogs and it's awesome to hear of a friend from high school who went off and made lots of money and built this cool organization, actually finding the courage to do that yourself, especially where coming out of a university, everyone is pushing you to go into consulting or investment banking if you're in the business school or more traditional routes if you're anywhere else is rare. And so people like Bernie... Schroeder at SDSU, people like Ted Zoller at UNC Chapel Hill deserve a lot of credit for continuing to push a narrative in the direction that it went. So thank you. Uh, but more about, about Bernie, uh, where he really started his career was marketing. Uh, Bernie Schroeder founded CKS Partners, 
one of the world's first integrated marketing agencies. And he managed the advertising spend in the late 90s and early 2000s of some no-name companies at the time like Yahoo and Amazon before anyone really knew who they were. And then he eventually was successful enough with his own business to bring it public, growing to almost 9,000 employees and a billion dollars in revenue. So Bernie has had experience growing his own company. But I think most interestingly to me, Bernie was able to see from the sidelines both as a uh, marketing agent to some of the biggest tech companies 30 years ago and also to an entrepreneurship professor today seeing hundreds of companies get off the ground every single year about what it takes to successfully launch a company and a brand. And I loved hearing Bernie's stories of the dawn of the internet age and how the smartest companies, and we especially spend some time at Amazon, target their best customers early on because when you're starting the sales organization side of a company, it is so important to understand who that customer is, where they are, how to get to them, and be laser-focused on speaking their language, not Esperanto or the language of the world, but the narrow na tribal dialect of what your customer speaks. And the more narrow and focused you can be, the greater success you can have. And so I had a lot of fun speaking with Bernie, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Bernie Schroeder. Bernie Schroeder, welcome to the gong. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is going to be fun. I stumbled across you when I was really, I think, just quite blatantly Googling uh, sales experts in startups. Uh, somehow, I guess, through your prolific set of writing, you popped up and I, I found your website. And through a, a few emails back and forth, um, I think I found where I wanted to start together. And it's actually a line that you said in an email. And so I'm just going to read directly from there uh, where you told me it's about mindset. The right culture is so very translatable to sales. I am old school when it comes to a business. What matters is not any of the bullshit, but sales in the early days. You can talk metrics and valuation until the cows come home. But what did you sell this month? So I love that. <laughs> it is right on the nose. Uh, so I wanted to see how exactly it is you came about to that, uh, that way of thinking and talking. You know, I, I always thought when I started my marketing career that, you know, the goal was always revenue. And I started my marketing career in what ended up being one of the early marketing agencies in database and direct mail. And so everything we did was measured. Everything that, you know, we got paid for by the clients was accountable. And so we were looking at metrics, you know, anywhere from a day to a week out to a month out. And every the ROI was calculated constantly. So I actually... Uh, at that point in early in my career, I actually thought that's exactly what marketing's supposed to do. So I just never got off of that. Even as I moved into more disciplined marketing, even into brand strategy, and then ultimately creating my own company and then helping others, I still was a revenue guy from the get-go. And how were you tying, when you were doing this marketing, marketing is sort of sometimes seen as a step before revenue, you know, marketing job is to bring mm -hmm. leads into sales or just to get the name out. If you talk about more ephemeral things like brand strategy, that seems even further away. How did you tie marketing to revenue in your mind? Well, in the early days when I was doing direct and database, it was uh, extremely um, verifiable. 
we dumped direct mail and we got a response and that response led to revenue. So we knew exactly what we got based on that mailing. I mean, it was just like ice cold. This is exactly what we got. Uh, even when in the early days when I did online uh, marketing for online and offline marketing for Amazon, I mean, Jeff wanted to know what the numbers were every four days. And so we, it's, it sounds crazy, but when we did strip ads in the Wall Street Journal, for example, we would study sales on Amazon for the next 24 hours. So and what's, could, a, what's a strip ad? A strip ad for us was uh, something the Wall Street Journal had never done before. We were putting in roughly inch and a half tall ads by nine inches in the middle of the stock quotes and never been done before. And so we would run an ad and we would look and there was nothing else we did in the ecosystem. And then we would measure the response on Amazon sites for sales. Then we would be quiet for seven, eight days. Then we would drop another strip ad and we would measure in the next 24 hours sales because we hadn't done anything. There was nothing else we were doing. So even in that situation where some people might be like, oh, you know, Jeff, let's create some brand awareness Jeff didn't want brand awareness. Jeff needed revenue. He needed revenue to justify the millions he got and the millions he was going after. So he wasn't telling his investors, oh, we're going to spend the next year building brand awareness. He was like, we're going to spend the next year going from 3 million to 30 million. <laughs> what, uh, what, what was the state of Amazon when you started working with them early on? The, that state was... Um, falling down warehouse in Seattle. If you've ever seen the picture of Jeff with a door for a desk. Yeah. Famously. That's the, okay. So that's the state. It's him. <laughs> it's him and nine Unix programmers and no one else. Maybe one office manager. There was no marketing people. There was, there was nobody. We did everything. And, and who is we? What, what is the story of how you got involved? So we is um, my company, CKS Partners, which was an integrated agency that we built around branding in the core and then doing all the integrated marketing. We were tired of, of different shops doing different work, you know, an advertising shop doing their work, a packaging, a trade show. We decided to build an agency that do everything for a brand or we would do nothing. And so um, the way we landed Amazon is I was up in, in Portland at the time and I just answered the phone. And Jeff just happened to call us. He's looking for an agency. He'd heard about us in Silicon Valley. He, he, I guess, stumbled across the fact that we were up in Portland and he just literally called me out of the blue. <laughs> uh, how did you, how did you feel? Did you hear about Amazon at the time? Didn't even know what it was. Matter of fact, um, I had a very short conversation with him. I answered the phone and he said, this is Jeff Bezos. I'm calling from Seattle. And I said, how can I help you? And he's like, I have a small company. I'm trying to get it to grow. I'm looking for an agency. Uh, you guys come recommended. And I'm like, what do you do? He goes, I sell books online. And at the time, I'm standing in my office looking out my window at the Barnes & Noble across the street in Portland. And I'm like, who gives a shit? Uh, you're selling books online. I don't even understand that. I mean, this was the very early, early days online. We had been helping companies get online, but I hadn't talked to an e-commerce company yet. I didn't even know what e-commerce was, so to speak. So I was very cool and casual. Uh, Three-minute conversation, hung up the phone, uh, didn't talk to anybody for most of the day, ran into my creative director later in the day and said, oh, I got a crazy call today. And he's like, what? And I go, this guy in Seattle wants us to do work for him. And he's like, what does he do? I go, he sells books online. And my creative director was a pretty young guy. He goes, Amazon? And I go, how do you know about Amazon? 
And he goes, I know about them. And I go, I go, they don't look that interesting. I go for what they're going to spend and what they're going to do. I'm thinking we don't even go up there that we just turn it down. And he's like, are you crazy? He goes, we have to go up there. And, you know, against my better judgment, we went up there. I, I love that story. I feel like that that story encompasses what the mindset of many people in the late 90s and early 2000s was, that the internet was this mystery, this thing that wasn't really understood. And for many people, for many companies, that was the end of their life, right? All your pets.coms and web bands that couldn't convince people that the internet was going to be something that they were going to be going to be using. But Amazon obviously had success in that. What do you think? Well, it, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted you, but I think the thing that showed me how Jeff was going to be different is when we visited him and he told us what he was planning on doing. And initially it sounded delusional um, because we said, what's beyond this? And he said, you know, do you understand what Walmart does? And we were like, yeah. He goes, well, that's what I'm going to do. And we were like thinking this guy's higher than hell. Um, but then he talked about the infrastructure he was building. He talked about all of the money he was getting. He was building in this backend infrastructure. And when the way he described the infrastructure, I mean, I'd, I'd been around a lot of Oracle guys. I'd been around some IBM guys. I'd been around some McKinsey guys. Uh, and he was describing this, this massive, massive infrastructure that I was like, holy shit, I've never seen anything like this brought to the web. And so that's what made me believe that he probably could take some margin of share in books and then immediately take all early share in online e-commerce. Because as far as I could see, there was no competition online. Yeah. And, and so you were able to, you came in a little, a little uh, incredible. Uh, credulous rather, you came a little bit credulous and then you were able to convert that into understanding for yourself what he was going to be able to do. What do you think you did well or your agency did well alongside Jeff and his team in the early days to help Amazon get those sales? Because you who have been around technology for a decade or, or two at this point, you yourself were a little uh, unbelieving in what Amazon was until and you had to be convinced. The general public had never even heard of the internet or what it can do. Uh, but yet Amazon needed to get sales. So what do you think it is that you and your agency did well for a semi-unknown company like Amazon on a yeah. technology that wasn't even understood to allow them to grow through those early pains? I tell you, this is the challenge. And, and I wrote a previous book called Brands and Bullshit. It's for millennial marketers. It is so hard to do branding with not a lot of money for something that no one understands initially. It's so hard. Like normally you need like 20 to 50 million, right? If you're going to build a brand. But then when you look at, is it possible to do work that builds the brand at the same time it increases sales? And it is if you're very, very clever. Uh, I mean, if you think about even Facebook and you think about Google and you think about Uber, they didn't really spend a lot of money in the early days at all, even Airbnb uh, to get started, right? For us, we had to do two things at the same time. We had to build the brand at the same time we were generating revenue. And the way we did it was very, very clever. These strip ads that we did in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, um, the San Francisco Chronicle, um, we, we used comedy and breath 
to have to make them memorable. And so our little strip ads, which you think like, well, what the hell can what can you do in a little ad like that that would that would even amount to anything? We were very very clever, and we said things like this: um, six hundred and ninety books on golf, eight hundred and twelve on divorce, Amazon. Earth's biggest bookstore. And once we started looking at all the categories they had access to in the books, we started writing these breath juxtaposition comedy lines about everything. And we did two things at the same time. We made people kind of go, Amazon's a bookstore and they seem pretty effing big, you know? And so who the hell are these guys? And so with just a relatively incredible small amount of space, we actually built the brand and generated sales. I mean, if you say, Bernie, what was your initial goal? It was drive sales. And then the thinking was, like anything, if you get sales, then you're going to get word of mouth. You're going to get early adopters talking to early influencers, talking to early mass. And so, you know, we had about a million people we were targeting. It was that small of a list in key cities that we felt were influencers. And rather than say, we have a lot of books we decided to use humor to showcase the breath and kind of the, the dichotomy of, you know, you want to golf, but it could, you know, it could cost you your marriage. Um, and so it was fun and it, yet it drove sales that, that campaign won awards. Uh, and I don't know what for, if I look, if I think now, was it for revenue or was it for branding? Uh, but it was probably one of the best little campaigns I've ever been part of. Now, one of the things that Amazon famously did very well, and you even mentioned it right there from a sales perspective, is they did a fantastic job being really narrow in their focus in the beginning. I mean, most people know the story that Amazon started by being just a bookseller online uh, for the first few years. I mean, they went public as purely a bookseller. And then their next category they went after after that was something as similar as possible to books. And that was movies and CDs, same Mm -hmm. size, same kind of category. So they're saying very, very focused. Beyond that, though, they were even more focused, right? Because Amazon didn't just sell every single book out there in the beginning. They were particularly helpful to those fringe books, those people who are looking for some uh, weird 1974 science fiction (laughs) thing that only sold a thousand copies, but you could find that on Amazon because of their system. How do you, now that you're uh, an entrepreneurship professor and you work with, I don't know how many dozens or hundreds of startups by now, how do you think about the importance of being narrow uh, in a subset of customers that you want to go after? I think it's critical. I mean, I, it, when I have a conversation with a startup in San Diego or even a student, I, I literally say the same thing. Who are your first thousand customers? Um, because it's, you work out in concentric circles. You almost have to tell people to read Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. And I mean, don't go out and get the book for those of you listening to podcasts. Go Google some summary. And if you understand networks and you understand tipping point networks and you start to understand sales influencers from mavens, from other people, then you start to understand who you critically have to get. And if you don't get them, you might not go. You might have something amazing and not go. And so that's something that I am hyper-focused on with any, with any startup. I don't, I don't care how big the opportunity is as an end game. In the beginning, who are the first 1,000? Yeah, what kind of what kind of questions do you work with? I'd love to hear an example of what kind of questions you ask the companies you're advising to help them get to that answer. Well, what's funny is initially when I meet with them and I say, "Hey, who do you think your target customer is?" and they go, "Everybody." And I go, "Okay, 
well, let's look at your product. So your product is an app and da 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 da. And so who has, so now it's not everybody, it's everybody with a smartphone or it's everybody with this kind of an app. And, and then what's your age range? I mean, who do you think? And they go, everybody. And I go, no, no, no. If your life depended on it, who, what age range do you have to kill it in? And then they say that. And I say, okay, within this age range, is there an income you know, bracket? And then within the income bracket, is it male? Is it female? And then within that, is it East Coast, West Coast? Is it middle? And I just keep narrowing, narrowing, narrowing them down till they ultimately go, it's 1,000 people in San Francisco and San Diego. Now, how do we get them? Yeah, and that, that not knowing that in the very beginning is probably, for a first-time entrepreneur, is probably understandable because of the excitement of starting it. But spending, I've gone down that path myself where I've spent too far going after everybody. And once you bring on somebody to lead sales, or even if the CEO is doing it themselves, going after everybody only means two things. It means A, you'll never really be able to build a good enough product for one individual subset because you'll be 50% complete for everybody. And it means you are not going to be able to put enough effort into targeting those groups of people because every additional sale is hard to make in the beginning. If you sell first a book and then a CD, and then a, a Game Boy controller on Amazon, uh, you don't know if you're going after the readers, the music lovers, or the gamers. You know, it's a fine race in a startup between time, opportunity, and money. And what I find is the most inefficient for people is how they spend their time. You mentioned before, I think before we clicked record, you mentioned that uh, if, a, if you're meeting with a startup and they can't tell you within the first minute how they plan on making money, you want to end the meeting. Yeah, that's there... kind of, it sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, but it, but I've been known to do that. And for people that know me, they, they'll be like, yep, yep, he did that to me. Um, I just, early on, I have a rough time with people that might be delusional. Uh, if they're a little more mature and it has nothing to do with age, then I can engage them in a conversation. If they're simply delusional and there is no amount of talking that I'm going to do that's going to change their mind, I just terminate the meeting. Now, are there other, uh, the revenue one, I can almost guess where it came from. You know, you having been around the Valley in the 90s, there are plenty of companies that were quite high flying that never even breathed the word revenue in their offices. Uh, are there any other attributes of small startups that make you really uncomfortable or make you turn away quickly when they don't when they don't have a business model that's well defined and when their point of differentiation really isn't uh it's one thing to go out and, and i say this to them i go you know if you run and you run like hell you're going to get to five or six million and that might be good for what you're trying to do but you don't have something that will differentiate you enough when the big boys come and if that's your goal, then go ahead and run. And maybe along the way, you'll find some IP. Uh, and, you know, it's that kind of a conversation. They can't be delusional and say, you know, hey, I don't need IP and I can run like hell. But the thing that I can't tell either is if they do start running, will they discover IP, you know, along the way as, as you know, coming out of development or coming out of a partner or whatever. So sometimes I can't tell in the early days, if, they, if there isn't hardcore IP, uh, but it's kind of what I call light IP. And I don't know that they're not going to trip over kryptonite on the run. So I just look at them and go, might as well start running. 
Uh, and that's my, my favorite line, even to students here, is if, if I can't quite tell whether or not they have something incredibly defensible, meaning it's in that gray area, then I just go RLH, man. And they look at me and they go RLH. I go run like hell uh, and just hope that you trip over something on your run because it's early and you may not need it to be you may not need the IP right now to build out, you know, a billion dollar company because the competitors will come. But hopefully on the journey, uh, you'll discover something that will allow you to be defendable. Like if you look at Ring, for example, you know, there's nothing in Ring that's potentially defensible. I mean, it's a proximity sensor. It's a, it's wireless. It's a camera. It's a motion sensor. It's tied to an app. Like of all that crap, which is good crap, what is IP? Well, I'm sure Ring filed some patents, but based on what you might see when they started, I didn't see any IP. And so, you know, sometimes it's good enough. Sometimes it's good enough to get running because you're early. It was good enough for Amazon to buy them for a billion after about five years. Well, tell me a little more about that because oftentimes when uh, an entrepreneur or young company is pitching to an investor, the investor's first question is kind of reasonably, how are you going to become a billion dollar company? Because if the investor invests in too many cute companies that are you know, doing $5 million in sales, they're going to run out of money as well and it's going to be a problem for them. But you're saying that it's okay to not have that answer right away? Yeah. And how long can somebody go without it? You know, so I, I, there's entrepreneurs who I've met with who say, yeah, we're going after this market and we're starting niche on purpose. And that's fantastic. That's what you're supposed to do. But how long can you remain niche before at least having a very good plan for going broader? Because some folks are just always going to be serving the, you know, the, the rare black beetle enthusiast markets yep. or something small. You know, I'm... <sighs> It's funny because um, I, I was in Silicon Valley for nine years, right? Pretty much all of the 90s and, um, and got to know the VCs really well. Got to know the, the people at Kleiner and Sequoia and several others. I mean, we took their companies, we took their companies out. I personally did the early marketing and strategy and branding for Yahoo. I did Amazon. One of my partners did uh, eBay. Uh, we co-joined on another opportunity and did Travelocity. Uh, I mean, we did, we did them almost all. We did Netscape. I, I ended up launching Explorer and one of my partners did Netscape. It's kind of fascinating. Um, and even, it, 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 it sounds funny, but when I see teams here in San Diego or on the campus and I got kids running up to me and saying, yeah, all I need is funding and I can go. And I'm like, you don't need any funding. I go, for what you're trying to do, you can break that marketplace with almost no funding, keep eating top ramen and don't, don't get money early, get revenue and get customers in the first year, year and a half, live out of an igloo. I don't give a shit. You're just going to increase your validation and you're going to increase your, val your, your validation. And sure enough, for the students that have believed me, they've gone and done that. They've literally kept their expenses incredibly low. They didn't go for early money. They didn't take early angel. Uh, we begged, borrowed and stole them to customers uh, especially if it was software. And after a year and a half of them still being on the campus, and basically, you know, students are starving anyway. So starving on a campus is no big deal. Uh, the one thing they have that a lot of people don't have is free talent on a college campus. 
Uh, I mean, there's a company that I think has raised around 10 million alcohol Korski. Uh, when they started on the campus, they had nothing. It was two guys. And they were like, they came to me and they were like, we need to do this and this and this to go get funding. I'm like, you don't need any funding. I go, what do you need funding for? If I gave you money right now, what would you do with it? They go, I'd hire coders. And I'm like, hire coders? There's like 900 over in the computer science program. Go offer them some pizza, you know, and get them coding. And sure enough, they did that. And they spent about a year and a half really building out this software to the point where um, they were able to raise uh, an angel round of 400000 and then within six months raise, uh, raise a small A round of three and then just raise another six. And they were so much better off showing people they had customers, they were starting to produce revenue, all with no money. And it made everything better. Yeah, without a doubt, I, I that that's so true. When I, I one of my bigger failures is a startup called Roamer that we were building like Airbnb for the outdoors, and we spent we we had some customers, we had a tiny bit of traction, but the amount, the expectation that we had of money coming to us, and the excuses that we made when venture capital did not come our way, sunk us absolutely sunk us. And the amount I learned from that about putting the time into the sales and the revenues at the early stage and the hearing your customers and the making sure de-risking the company for investors when it does come along, uh, that, that one I think is going to stick with me for a long time. Where on the other side of that, you have two good friends of mine who are in college and one of them has been on the podcast, uh, Patrick Matiers, the CEO of Seal the Seasons, which takes, frozen, takes fruit from farmers that farmers couldn't sell freezes it, rebrands it, resells it. It's awesome. I love that shit. They spent years without any outside funding. And they just, I remember going to their house to hang out and have a beer. And they were just there putting fruit into bags. Uh, And they just had all our friends over. They got us a case of beer and we put fruit into bags. And now after millions of dollars in revenue, they're in every major grocery around the country. Uh, And that scrappiness with that simple mission of just make more fruit, put it in more store shelves, that got them to that success later on. You know, for anybody that's listening to this, you know, that's a, either an entrepreneur or a wantrepreneur, don't think money is going to make or break you. I mean, it's really not. You're most inventive and creative when you don't have any money. I've seen people get a hundred million and blow through it like it's water. I've seen people with nothing build a hundred million dollar company. Um, and it's not about, you know, well, I'm not good enough without money. Well, then you shouldn't be an entrepreneur because the best entrepreneurs are just problem solvers and they're creative in a problem solving way. And so I've always found it's almost like an island mentality. If I put you on an island, you'll figure out a way to survive. And it's a funny thing when people start saying, well, if you just get funding, you'll be fine. You know, so everybody puts that into their mindset. I actually tell students they should never go for funding. And if they can build a company without funding, that's awesome. Then they own all the equity. Yeah, funding is not the goal. The goal is giving customers great products. Uh, there's actually a, a line I liked in your new book. Um, you, you wrote this recently. You wrote a new book called Startup Culture Mindset. And in there, you quote uh, Yvonne Chouinard, the CEO of Patagonia. Uh, and he's got this line that you write in there that says, at Patagonia, making a profit is not the goal because the Zen master would say, profits happen when you do everything else right. 
Similar I, thing with funding where the funding comes if you can show that you have everything else right, you have customers in place. But how do you think about the effect that that everything else uh, in quotes has on profit, on sales, on ability to, to sell you know, to investors? I, I know a lot of people might hear that quote and go, well, that's freaking Patagonia. <laughs> well, Patagonia started with just a couple guys selling mountain gear, you know, out of the truck. So I don't, it, I don't, when I hear that quote, I picture him in 19, you know, 55 or 58 starting Patagonia and saying, I want to build better mountain gear and I want to do it in a way where I don't harm the planet. So I want to reuse things. I want to get maybe rope from a certain part of the world. I want to do this. I want to do that. And it's this thing I, you know, where you have a purposeful culture. I mean, I, it, for any listener out there who's never going to go to Patagonia, okay, and they're in Ventura, you you have to understand what it's what it's like to to be an employee of Patagonia. They don't hire anyone. I mean, ninety five percent of their employees are referrals. When people get hired there, they tend to stay, and the reason is they honestly believe uh, in the founder and the mission. They honestly believe that they can make great product that's actually quite expensive, right? Uh, and not harm the planet. They actually, if you have any Patagonia gear and you stop in at a store, they don't care if you bought it 40 years ago, they'll fix it. They'd rather fix it than see you throw it away, right? And so that mantra is deep. So I believe that you don't, not everyone has to be Patagonia, but you better have a mission. You better understand exactly what your mission is. Um, I remember when Salesforce started, and I think one of our partners did the early marketing for Salesforce, early marketing and branding. And, you know, I asked him one day, I go, what the hell is Salesforce? And he goes, it's like super Oracle light. And I go, well, Oracle's kind of a, a bastard in terms of how they treat their customers. They just are like, I'm Oracle. If your system doesn't work, it's because you're stupid. You need to pay Oracle more money, right? They had a stranglehold on the market. So I said, well, who's their customers? And he said, oh, just small companies. And I go, that's awesome. Small companies, you know, that, that won't get the time of day from Oracle or anybody else and blah, 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 blah. And that they just stayed on that. And so they only recruited people to Salesforce in the early days that believed in that mission. So all the people that were like, you are never going to be as big as Oracle. We don't want you. You are never going to be as good as Oracle. We don't want you. You know, uh, small businesses suck. We don't want you. You know, they wanted people in the early days that believed that small companies deserve better. And I think one of the reasons they've actually grown as rapidly as they've grown is because they did such a great job of having people believe in that mission. Because at the end of the day, Salesforce is just an adequate product. It's nothing intensely insane. It's an adequate product priced reasonably well, pushed by a lot of people that say, we can help your small business. Uh, yeah, it's funny that you bring that up. Actually, uh, just a few episodes ago, we had Trisha Gelman, who was the former chief marketing officer of Salesforce uh, on the podcast. And she was telling stories about the same thing, that the thing Salesforce did incredibly well was talk about the death of software. They made it their mission. They made it their pledge and their credo to kill software because Oracle was on software and Salesforce was in the cloud. And they talked. she talked about how her and her colleagues gathered in front of an Oracle conference with picket <laughs> signs. And they, they had a rebellion, a revolt for the death of software. It's so almost they, like a Braveheart scenario, isn't it? It was so Braveheart. <laughs> it was so Braveheart. Mel Gibson would have been very proud. <laughs> 
when you but, think but sometimes about, people but sometimes when you're breaking into a new part of the marketplace some people early adopters might buy into the cause and the mission more than the product in other words they'll tolerate an adequate product if the mission is fantastic can you talk more about how to find that mission that's, because it's very difficult. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll caveat that by saying I'm on company startup number four now that I've either started or been very early at. And I don't know if I've ever yet been able to say in a few simple words what our mission is mm. in any of those groups. And I, we've beaten around it and we've had yeah. some successes without it. But it is incredibly difficult to do and incredibly impressive, at least from the outside, when somebody's able to – you know, my government works at Pinterest and their mission is quite simply to help people do more of what they love or be creative and do more of what they love. And it's beautiful and it's simple and it is yeah. what they do and it drives every decision there. How do you help understand what a mission uh, needs to be and where it comes from? It's a tough thing for each company. I mean, I remember sitting down with John Wilson from Stan Socks and John had been at Reef and, and he was like, I'm leaving Reef. And I go, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to this company called Stance. And I go, what is that? He goes, we're going to make socks. And I thought he said something else. So I said, you're going to make what? And he goes, we're going to make socks. And I go, socks? I go, who gives a shit about socks? And he goes, amazingly, a lot of people do. I mean, most socks are shit. He goes, they're designed for shit. They're sold for shit. He goes, what we're going to do is we're going to go on a mission that initially is going to do socks and then we're going to do other clothes, but we're going to take thread and we're going to make thread amazing. And I think their branding is stance, the uncommon thread. And they were like, everything we build is going to have a purpose to what we build it. So if we build a sock for runners, it's going to have a certain way it's designed for runners, socks for this socks for that. And ultimately they built socks for the NBA and, and major league baseball and whatnot. But, they use that whole positioning as a mission to have employees join them and go, look, we're not going to be a clothing company. We're not going to be a bot. We're going to revolutionize the way people think about how they perform. It wasn't, it was almost Nike-esque, right? And initially I was like, it's just a sock, right? <laughs> and, and they built it into, I mean, they're going to hit a billion dollars in revenue. And, um, by getting people to believe that they've designed better things around the use of better threads, smarter threads, whatever that means. Uh, when he first said it to me, I just was like, that can't possibly be your mission, right? But it, it, it ended up being their mission and they thought about it quite hard. They spent four months talking about culture once they decided what they were gonna do. And I was amazed that they spent four months talking about culture and it was all because they needed to figure out how to bring the right people on that they'd all been at companies where the wrong people had been brought on and it held the company back and almost in a brave heart type sense, they wanted to be a, get really, really good at bringing the right people on as they were, because they knew they were going to grow rapidly and that they could not make mistakes in their hiring decisions. And that meant they had to identify people against a set of values uh, the culture and the mission. And that's what they use um, to separate people. And still today, they probably have five, 600 employees. Um, there's five partners. You cannot hire on at Stance until you've completed a culture interview with a partner. And 
what do you think from a culture perspective, I want to bring this back into sales uh, as we wrap up here, but from a culture perspective, either when they're doing interviews and your experience hiring or working with the many people you've worked with who lead sales and organizations, how, what kind of questions, what kind of process do you go through when looking at uh, somebody to lead sales for your culture and your company? You know, if it's someone that I'm not promoting from within, that gets really tricky because they haven't been there. They haven't seen the culture. They haven't tasted the culture. It's almost like your Braveheart and, and your cousin says to you, hey, I have this friend. He's not Scottish. He's from Ireland, <laughs> but he wants to fight. <laughs> and you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, is this guy going to come in? Is he going to be right? He or she? Is, it, is he going to upset the tribe? Is he going to upset the mission? So I would say the due diligence that you have to do on someone from outside the company is at a higher level than someone who's inside the company. And you've already been able to measure their cultural skills. Now, it's, for them, it's a question of skill set. Do they have the skill set to lead sales, right? Or can they be trained up? When someone comes in from the outside, it's not the skills. You can see that they acquired the skills somewhere else. It's going to be the culture. Uh, well, listen, Bernie, I want to go on for about three more hours with you, <laughs> but I, I think I get kicked off uh, after a certain point. Let me switch over here to a few rapid fire questions, uh, some of which are on the topic and some of which are totally off. You ready for them? Yep. Uh, are there any sales or startup or marketing books that have been particularly helpful to you uh, besides your own, I think? Uh, the, the best book I've ever read on sales is Spin Selling by Neil Rackham. It completely changed the way I thought about sales. Yeah, love it. Uh, what do you think of the Tesla Cybertruck? I think it's awesome. Would you I get mean, one? I don't know if I would get one. I'm not a truck guy. But I think, I think you got to send messages to the marketplace that says, it ain't the same old show anymore. And I don't give a shit what you think of the truck. I'm going to roll right over yours. So F you. And whether or not he ever ends up building that, he just sends a message to every other truck manufacturer in the world. Yeah, go Elon. <laughs> uh, what is the sale you are most proud of landing? Um, that's an interesting question. That's a really, I think, you know, man, I've landed a lot of accounts. Uh, I'm trying to think of maybe something I, I never had a, was supposed to have a shot at and got. I remember one time I flew out from New York to Silicon Valley to answer a question that I could have answered in email or phone. And the way the question was asked to me, I was like, holy shit, like they're seriously considering our agency for this business. Like, but if I just answer the question via email or phone, it's such a simple question. Like they won't get the power of, of how we could actually do this. So I literally got on an 11 o'clock flight, landed in San Francisco, drove to the client's office, showed up at nine o'clock unannounced, announced myself to the receptionist who said, do you have an appointment? I said, no. You know, why are you here? I'm here to answer a question. <laughs> and the director of marketing for that company came out to the lobby and said, I can't believe you're here. Like, we just needed the question answered. And I go, I wanted to show you my level of commitment to answering your question. And we got the business. 
Yeah, I bet you did. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't the most, it wasn't the largest piece of business that I ever got. It was the most creative way I think I've ever gotten one. Do you remember the question? No. <laughs> but it was like, it was a nothing bullshit question in an RFP. I mean, if it's just one of those innocuous questions and because they were asking for an answer to it, something triggered me to say as an, cause I thought we were outside. I knew they were going to five different agencies and I thought we were number five, but the way they, just the fact that they asked that question made me think, wow, they must be nervous about something from an existing agency. And if that's the case, maybe this whole opportunity is ripe for the taking. And I just told my boss, I said, I'm getting on a red eye. I'll be back tomorrow afternoon. And he was like, you feel that strongly? And I go, yep. And I, and I just flew out, showed up. Well, listen, that is, that is scrappy sales 101. Uh, and I think that is a fantastic way uh, to put a bow on this awesome episode. Bernie, can I ask, where can people find you, learn more about your work and follow what you're doing? Well, I'm at, uh, I have a really simple website at bernieschroeder.com. And they can obviously find any of the books that I've written um, on Amazon. And I'm also a Forbes contributor. Um, so I write a lot for Forbes. If they just Google me under Forbes, they'll find all the articles I've written for Forbes. Yeah. And I was actually reading through the Forbes one uh, today and, and you wrote an episode or you wrote an article about a week ago, six attributes investors look for in mission driven founders. Yep. So anybody founding something, I'd recommend that one as a place to start. Cool. Ernie, thank you very much. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. Well, there you have it. Bernie Schroeder, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to learn more about Bernie, I'd recommend starting with his Forbes page and reading some of his work. Just Google Bernie Schroeder Forbes and dig in. That's Schroeder spelled S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R. And you can check out his latest book, Startup Culture Mindset, and start there and, and work your way backwards. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review and a rating. It is so, so, so helpful. Or find me all over the interwebs at A. Lubarski 2. Until next time, happy selling.